opposing the government and opposing conservatives. I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any dissent whatsoever. We know who the hard left who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were right to right wing. It's a hard left agenda. Printing money, nationalisation without compensation as a hard left wing position. Hard left, hard left, the 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 hard left, We have both spent far too much of our time over the last week or two reading the book. Uh, Eating the book with our minds. Out. Yeah, left, left out, out by, by Gabriel Pogram and Patrick McGuire. Yeah, and I just yeah, realised yeah. that the first show, that, that section of the show is going to be a pain in the ass to edit because I forgot to put my fucking headphones on. So there's going to be a big bleed through on my end. That's entirely my fault. Uh-huh. Boots on the other foot, yeah, that's normally my mistake. <laughs> yeah, 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 but but that's all sorted now, so let's not sweat about that. Um, Alright, we can pick just the edited highlights out of uh, the character assassination of the coward Willard Foxton. <laughs> also, I've got book. dinner now as well, so if you if you feel like <laughs> going off on any like protracted uh, soliloquies at any point, Shakespearean right. monologues, then uh, I, I'm, Christ, I'm up yeah. for that. I'll cover up the chewing noises coming from your end, it's fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh god, yeah. How was the Navarra thing, by the way? Ah, yeah, so I, I just watched that. It was pretty good, I thought, in terms of like refreshing my memory of the book, which, mm-hmm. you know, Geraint says we've been spending too much time reading it. I spent too much time in a very short, concentrated period of time reading it. I finished oh, that's it. Worse. I finished it in like two or possibly three three days i can't remember which but it was a real like i was up very late at night bunning big zoots you know just just in fact uh, i would like to thank national treasure sir elton john for <laughs> providing the soundtrack with his early 70s records which i'd never really listened to much before and i thought you know maybe i should give these a try and they're very good records so i'd like to thank elton for getting me through what was quite an unpleasant read for some Someone with a lot of emotional investment in the Corbin project. It's really good when Seamus is up to his old tricks to have, you know, the bitches back! You know, like, it's awful. So, again, yeah, thank you to a, 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 a deserved recipient of Britain's great honour system. Goodbye, England's roses. Uh, Ian McNichol finally gets a sack halfway through. <laughs> Candle in the wind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was listening to the original of that on the, on the, the album, not the Diana version, sadly. Yeah. But yeah, it's the, the, the sentiment. Just imagining, like, Tom Watson after the 2017 election. Like, he was naked when they found him. And, like, just... I burned through the book pretty quickly because I felt like I didn't want to 
dwell on it too much. I didn't want to live in this world of sordid leader of the opposition office interpersonal politics for too long. There were bits of it that were just very tedious and just not interesting reading material, and bits of it that were, albeit fairly averagely executed. It's just not interesting to read 30 pages in a row on Labour's Brexit position inching backward and forward. Yeah, and who exactly were... in the office was pushing for this and pushing for this and pushing for this compromise. Mm. It really isn't, other than that Ian Lavery was right about a lot, is basically all I took from huge chunks of it there. Some amazing Ian Lavery stuff in there as well. There is this bit, I don't want to spend the whole thing making cheap shots at the book and how it's written because I already did that on oh. Twitter in a pretty extensive thread uh, I think you've got this episode going on false pretenses, I'm out <laughs> <laughs> so, so, okay, sorry we're here to bury the authors of this book, that's what people pay the big bucks for so there's this bit, they have a little jab at Squawk Box for being like the, the muscular Ian Lavery with his tough guy image or something but that is literally <laughs> the way that he is portrayed by yes. Maguire and Pogram and every political appearance bruiser. of this book there's this one bit where it's like his politics and background were completely different to Corbyn's but they only explain how his background is different to Corbyn yeah. everything they, they explain about his politics politics Corbyn also yeah. agrees with and it's they, like they say this guy's northern this other guy lives in London and has done for decades therefore their politics are completely opposite yeah they're like he earned his political stripes in the miners strike and yeah. uh, is a longtime supporter of like Cuba solidarity I'm like oh completely different to Jeremy Corbyn then <laughs> yeah it actually had me thinking that they were more similar than I'd previously thought yeah 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 you, you don't really associate Ian Lavery with his left wing foreign policy views the same way you would Corbyn no. even before he was leader but actually it seems like he does have a record there and they've actually got loads in common there is a bit as well, if we're just talking about individual howlers in there, where they kind of call Dennis Skinner the cantankerous old goat of the party's left. Apologies if I misremembered and they don't actually call yeah, him no, a it goat. Yeah, no, I think it's almost word for word, like, that, that sounds about right. Now, he is quite cantankerous, but yeah. in the context that they're saying this, it's that 2018 Labour conference speech that Keir Starmer did where he said and Remain will be an option on the ballot in a second referendum. And all Labour's pro-Remain members in the audience were like, yeah! And Carrie Murphy, who had doubts about a pro-Remain strategy, looked fucking miserable. And Dennis yeah. Skinner was not clapping and looked fucking miserable. And I'm like... Because he's one of the first in the firing line. Yeah, I was like, hmm. he, he more than anyone needs Labour to get it right. Correctly, doubting that they have. Yeah, of like... Of course he's fucking stony-faced. Give Skinner a bit of credit there he may be cantankerous but he's not an idiot he quite correctly thought that a more pro-remain position from the Labour Party would endanger his seat which there's this documentary me and Tom went on the film chat podcast to talk about it in 2017 Dennis Skinner Nature of the Beast and you know it's a very kind of like adulatory documentary to a fault actually because there's this bit where they're in Bolsover yet they talk to some guy who's like oh everyone votes for Dennis here even Tories and stuff and it's like like, 
No, not true. In 2017, his votes didn't go up in accordance with those of Labour seats in the rest of the country. He actually, you know, the Tories gained ground in Bolsover in 2017, while Labour was gaining ground elsewhere. And then in 2019, he lost his seat. A big beast politician in a way, although he's consciously avoided being so in, like, the Westminster sense, especially in the sense of being a paedophile. Although, he goes to see every Woody Allen film. That's a fact about Dennis Skinner. That's impressive because Woody does a lot of films and a lot of them are shit. Yeah. But aside from that, he quite rightly sensed that there wasn't a big appetite for a fucking second referendum on which Remain would be an option in seats like Bolsover. Yeah, but they don't really give him the agency to have opinions for reasons, whereas elsewhere in the book it's like, oh, you know, Ruth Smith was very concerned about her wafer-thin majority which presented, like, of course it's logical that she'd be very concerned about how the leadership were doing if she's got a wafer-thin majority, but then when it's someone on the left it's just like oh, he was angry, shall we look, what, no, no, he was just angry there's a lot of, like, Ian Lavery being angry and stuff in there. But... I mean, yeah, yeah, fair enough, but it doesn't really paint him as being angry for bad reasons. He's, no, he's, no, no, I agreed with a lot his of His concerns are usually judgment. proven correct, whether they're aimed elsewhere on the left or whether they're aimed toward the right of the party. They're talking about... Diane Abbott made a comment in a shadow cabinet meeting and this obviously I don't know who briefed this to them so much of this stuff obviously there's like the journalist caveat that they run these all past two sources okay so if somebody has told these guys something somebody else has then told it to them but it is essentially a book that involves a lot of Westminster gossip but like there's one story where they're at a shadow cabinet meeting and Diane Abbott says something I think suggesting that those in some northern constituencies are racist, I don't know. Ian Lavery disagrees with this characterization of his constituents, but because Diane's a comrade, he's not gonna have a go at her. So Kia Starmer like nods, and Ian Lavery's like, Do you wanna fucking say that to my face, you cunt? <laughs> And that's just quite characteristic of, I don't know if that's yeah. a true story or not, but it's quite characteristic of the way that Lavery is characterised yeah. in Again, this the, book. the approach we're taking to this in general, because obviously we've already established that the fact check-ins are uh, a bit suspect to say the least in this book, all the ones that are either funny or reflect <laughs> poorly on people we don't like are definitely true. <laughs> all the rest of it is probably bullshit unless they can produce like 10 sources or something that's how it works <laughs> yeah um, yeah yeah therefore all the Ian Lavery stories especially the one about him offering Keir Starmer out are 100% true <laughs> but the th important thing to remember about this book is that unlike say a lot of newspaper reports on the Labour Party the last few years which although there's plenty of hostile briefings from anti-Corbyn people for instance Tony Blair went on the record for this book. There's nonetheless a large amount of this stuff comes from people who, while they may have differed strategically or ideologically, that they ultimately were within the Corbyn project and supported it. So a lot of it focuses on not so much like Tom Watson briefing, you know, oh, Seamus Milner's like pulling the strings, blah, blah, blah. It's like somebody who literally worked with Seamus Milner in Corbyn's office being like, ah, oh, Seamus Milner's pulling the strings and doing this blah, 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 blah. But so it could be like one guy who was seconded there for a fortnight or something. We don't know. They've maybe just given them five Seamus Milner's a dick stories and they've not really verified them. You sort of know who they haven't spoken to. 
Well, that's kind of what I wanted to get into. Obviously, Milne is a big character in this Mm. book, although sometimes almost notable by a kind of absence. That seems to be the main criticism of his management style, is that he was very... He was chillaxed, is the word. (laughs) When he is about, the book tends to go along with this sort of... Oh, just loitering in the background, exerting his influence, compared with, say, Gary Murphy, who they go much more both barrels in as her being more sort of hands-on. What I think is interesting about the book is that Carrie Murphy spoke to them on the record. She, she's <laughs> she's quoted throughout and yep. it very much gives her side of the story. There is also a lot of the side of the story that may be sympathetic to Seamus Milne and maybe some people within Corbyn's office who are closer to Seamus Milne, like for instance James Schneider, is portrayed as being on Milne's side in a lot of this stuff. It almost makes me suspect that Milne spoke to them off the record, because these people's sides of the story are in there, because it is this Tim Shipman style, here's everybody disagreeing with each other, here's what he said, here's what she said, blah 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 blah. You do obviously get the haters in there, but it is actually, I will say in the author's defence, they do seem to be fairly, in Gabriel Pogren's own words on Navarra just now, fairly amoral journalists who aren't that interested in so much portray. you know, if maybe at the end of the day Pogren and Maguire are against the Corbyn project, I don't necessarily think they have, like, a dog in the fight between Andrew Fisher and Seamus Milne. So you do get a reasonably balanced account of this internal party stuff, which I think is for the best, because I think, for example, in This Land by Owen Jones, which is coming out soon, you're going to be asked to very much take one side in an internecine office conflict that, unless you've literally worked in Jeremy Corbyn's office, you probably aren't really qualified to weigh in on. No. Kremlinology can only be judged from the people doing the Kremlinology. We don't know how accurate this all is, you know, or if it's just one side of workplace disputes. Regarding the Tim Shipman comparison, by the way, Patrick did say on Navarra that uh, Tim Shipman urged them to write this book. Uh, I bet you fucking did, yeah. There's money in this book, but... I don't fucking have anyone on the left in my contact book, so <laughs> fuck doing it myself. Is Tim Shipman the political editor of the Sunday Times? I think so. Let's have a look. He's some senior bastard. Because the political Ship, editor... Shipper's Ship Unbound. You call him by his name. Yeah, sorry, Shipper's Unbound. I mean... <laughs> really yeah, political editor of Sunday Times. Fucking yeah. hell, yeah. Shipper's is catfishing in that first picture of him on Google Images. He does not look that... I mean, he's not, he doesn't look that good in it, but he does not look that good in the uh, TV appearance. I've seen. Oh my god. Yeah, he is the political editor of the Sunday Times. Well, This is the, a man who should always have a beard. The political editor of the Sunday Times clearly does have some contacts on the Labour left, because according to the book, somebody in Corbyn's office, there is a name given in the book, according to the pro-Milne side of the office, they suspect Niall Suku to be this person who was a kind of pro-EU Andrew Fisher ally, went for a clandestine meeting with Tim Shipman in Costa and leaked him Andrew Fisher's very scathing resignation note with, in the words of the authors, an express desire to take Milne out. So, uh, you know, Shippers does have his, his Labour left contacts, at least one. I almost think there is kind of a use for this book to some extent in that that kind of thing is laid out for all to see. People have heard my little 
well, presumably, you've heard my little solo episode I did talking about this issue of people are, sc- are kind of scurrying now to write the first draft of history of the Corbin Project. Again, that's a mm-hmm. phrase used by the authors of this book. So the first draft, I guess, Pogren and Maguire got in there early. They get the first draft. The second draft is going to be This Land by Owen Jones. And I already kind of talk so people can hear some elaboration on my thoughts of how if people are interested in like one side of this issue then they will be able to get that yeah and you should listen to that <laughs> mini episode it was good yeah well thank you i don't want to turn this into like rehashing the themes of that but this book certainly with its scrupulous or some might say amoral kind of lack of investment lack of a dog in the fight so to speak to some extent, like I say, maybe the journalists privately are opposed to the Corbyn project. But by simply stating what people perceive to have happened from different factions, the discerning reader should be able to kind of read that and think, well, you know, maybe take some of it with a pinch of salt, but be able to make a slightly more qualified judgment on yeah. effectively the received wisdoms about the Corbin project. Though those received wisdoms also appear in this book, voiced by their advocates. For example, let's get to the move to remain, which is key in a lot of this disagreement. Now, I think it's possible to understand from the point of view of both factions within the left who had different views on how to handle the issue of Brexit in this book. For instance, I myself lean towards the view that it was a terrible mistake to lean into a more overtly remain position. And I think that is, as we've mentioned, articulated well in the book by people like Ian Lavery. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been fucking... I mean, we've seen the results of that now as well, you know? I think it's fair to say it was a big contributor to getting hammered last year. Yeah, and almost it makes you wonder, because again, as outsiders, we are not really qualified to weigh in on how Corbyn's office was run. And I think that that has factored far too much into people's analysis of the project. The reality is, unless you're interested in this kind of like Westminster horse racing stuff, and you're deeply like well connected, you're a a shipman of the left, you know, not not Harold. You really probably can't weigh in too much on whether it was like the way that Seamus Milne was disengaged with people in the office or the way that Kerry Murphy was too aggressive towards them, dealt a fatal blow to the Corbyn project. What you can do is you can look at the political judgment of these people, which is on the record, and that we are more qualified to judge. And so I think what the book is valuable for is that it kind of shoots a hole in the narrative that has vilified Milne and Murphy for their political judgment. Mm-hmm. Leaving aside entirely the sort of office politics of it, what we see is that these people were rightly sceptical about a strategy that did not go well for Labour, but essentially, I don't know if it's the level of press briefings from people on the Remain side of the divide or whatever, but the narrative has been set that these people were the problem. And then all this interpersonal stuff that essentially comes down to like ill-informed gossip on almost everyone who engages in its part has been folded into this case that is in fact 
quite flimsy against these people. Absolutely, yeah. A lot of it comes down to insinuating they were to blame for everything because essentially their office management style might not have been perfect. It's very strange in this sort of fixation on the micro, if you like. Um, it was clearly a story that has traction as well because you often mm-hmm. hear it cited by supposedly left inclined, but essentially soft left people is a reason why they can't support the Corbyn project. It's just a uniquely bad interpersonally or something. But they've got all this from fucking Stevie Bush columns. They don't know <laughs> if he knows shit. I don't know if he knows shit. <laughs> he might just be going off one embittered source. Like how half of Fleet Street were going off fucking Michael Duger at one point. No, absolutely. In terms of the flaws of the book, I felt it skimped on change uk once they actually well i suppose yeah. you could defend the authors by saying well they didn't take off did they they launched and then nothing fucking happened and this is ultimately a book about the corbyn project as well these people left the labor party they decided to go out into the cold on their own and they fucking froze to death to be fair it does get a lot of material out of their launch and the absurdity of much of that there's some fucking gavin shuka stuff um, <laughs> Um, that is just fun. like so this is the bit with the launch and they're hoping like immediately after the launch that Tom Watson will come out and support them if not actually join them they speak very conclusively in their defence and it's like Shuka watched with annoyance Watson had been the first person he called after leaving the stage it was time to tell the de facto leader of the Corbyn sceptics to put up or shut up he received no reply though Shuka <laughs> interpreted the snub as a calculated attempt to strangle the independent group at birth <laughs> the reality was that Watson missed a call and did not have Shuka's number saved to his phone. In the wank bunker. No signal yeah, down there. Exactly, yeah. Very bad reception there. You've got to make sure no one can track him when he's watching his animes. <laughs> yeah, but like, I mean... Shuka comes off as just an absurd figure the whole way through. He's obsessed with essentially management wank, you know, the, <laughs> the, the biggest dickhead in your office, middle manager, having all this ridiculous, like, calling it, like, the first trimester and the second trimester, and even fucking <laughs> Pogger and the Maguire are like, yeah, he meant when they're going to launch. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? He had... I can't remember what it was. The name was like Plan B or something. It was like B with a small yeah. B by it. And it's like, you just call it B flat. Yeah, they uh, thought they would have been incredibly t- clever by calling it things like Plan A and Plan B. <laughs> and, and, oh, yeah, this is going into the second trimester now, as in, actually, who's going to do it? And What's hilarious the... is everyone fucking hates Chris Leslie. He's, he's oh, clearly... yeah, yeah. People now say, and I've probably said myself at some point, oh, Chris Leslie's such a mug because he was like a proper front bencher. He was bound for glory before Corbyn, and then he just flounced out and left the party and ended his own political career. To be honest... This book makes it sound like Leslie would not have been back on the front bench under Starmer. Not because of political issues, although he is incredibly right-wing. Just everyone hates him. He's just an arsehole. He seems also to hate everyone outside of a very narrow tolerance of himself. The bit about him just absolutely burning up with hatred for Wes Streeting. I love it. Because Wes Streeting basically agreed with him on everything, but 
was always going to stay in Labour. He was essentially just raging in a WhatsApp group full of West Street his mates about what a cunt he is. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, in yeah. a context that doesn't even get you critical support for Chris Leslie for doing that. <laughs> no, Chris Leslie's insatiable appetite for bitching had also begun to repel potential conscripts. The 25 strong WhatsApp group that had been set up to coordinate trips to Sussex became his digital dartboard. Wes Streeting, the Corbyn sceptic member for Ilford North was more often than not the target for Leslie's verbal attacks. His sin was to talk in the uncompromising language of an MP signed up to Plan B while remaining committed to Plan A. So he was staying in the party, as Grant said. He was not in the group, but plenty of his friends from the 2015 intake were, namely Jess Phillips and Peter Kyle. Not surprised they were in, like, the traitor group with the traitors. Fucking <laughs> Chris Leslie causing drama in the boys' chat, man. What an image. <laughs> it's just great that all these, like, massively unlikable people all like each other as well. Who could like Jess Phillips? Who could like Wes Streeting and Peter Kyle? Yeah. Oh, e- each other. But Chris Leslie, you got to draw the line there. <laughs> like, this guy is just an arsehole. Like, there's another bit as well mentioned. Like, it's a line I've heard from Penny on Twitter. Mm-hmm. The two bad Chrises. Just everyone hates Chris Leslie and Chris Williamson in the PLP. <laughs> they were in the book as well when they were talking about trigger ballots to remove... MPs. Yeah, that's like, it. They, they called it the anti-Chris Rock because they were the only two that were hated enough in their constituencies that it would happen to. So, I mean, just to caveat, this shit is all... They're not the uh, only two, but... This is 100% true, by the way. All the stuff, as we said before, all the stuff about people we don't like that reflects badly on them is straight facts. Yes. And delivered to us by intrepid journalists with max yes. integrity. <laughs> yeah. All, the bits about our friends. Gabriel Pogrand. Yeah, the bits about Seamus Mill where people say he's bad, these are the work of of, of scurrilous hacks with no yeah. principles. But the stuff about Chuka and Chris Leslie is good. Definitely good, yeah. Gabriel <laughs> Pogmund, bald, probably politically bald in most senses, <laughs> but journalistically lustrous. Lustrous, mate. <laughs> so, that's great. Um, Gabriel Pogrod, look, I have no idea. Look, I think I said before, I think mm. his and Patrick Maguire's politics are journalist. I don't think <laughs> yeah. either of them are deeply ideological people, but... They live for the gossip, and they're obviously well-sourced for that. But when Gabriel Pogren did start reporting all the negative stories about internal Labour stuff, I did get curious about him, and thought I'd look up mm. what he said about Corbyn in the past. And there was some bizarre tweet from him from sometime between 2016 or 18, where he was like, if Labour ran on a fully, like, let's rejoin the Euro... No, not the Euro, but the EU platform. If Labour went full rem- main like they would be like five million points ahead so i was like (laughs) these guys are not on the hard left i don't think necessarily but i never got around to putting out our previous like hour or so that we recorded on this book before it came out because we mostly talked about how inaccurate a couple of stories from it were particularly the one about corbyn i'll put that out as like a bonus to this i think Mm -hmm. but there's you know a couple of stories like the one about corbyn's wife uh what was it did she demand was an it, ice cream it, or something? It was, it, was an oat, was it not an oat cake or something? An oat cake. Um, okay. Yeah. 
But that one, which was debunked as, as false and corrected in the Times excerpt, of course, ended up as in its original form in the book because it was already printed at that point. Yeah. So, and that, you know, by the time it came out, specific things in the book were already known to be complete bollocks. Well, the other bit was something that James Snyder corrected, which was mm-hmm. something about Corbyn not knowing the details of... The West of... Coast is suffering from record-breaking forest fires. Wait, what the fuck? I, just, I was wondering why you were coming out of my phone suddenly, but it's actually Michael Walker I just accidentally put on Navarro. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Thanks to Michael Walker for guesting on our podcast. Yeah, yeah cheers, Michael. He, he doesn't guest. know he's guested on the podcast, but he has now. So if you <laughs> follow him, you should, you should follow us and then, and then unfollow him as well because we're bad. <laughs> really? This is a real bridge burning episode right here. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, no one's listening 45 minutes in that hasn't already listened to like the previous 100 episodes. We're fine. <laughs> Our stagnation uh, makes us libel-proof, and it's brilliant. So so, so, <laughs> just to reiterate, Chris Leslie was, according to one person, going after Wes Streeting as though he's his personal punch bag. The other big revelation about Change UK is that Ian Murray very nearly joined them and was at the rehearsal. Apparently there was a rehearsal for their <laughs> launch event. How much and do you he, reckon but... Gapes rustled his paper at the rehearsal, man? <laughs> <laughs> and there is even a photograph to prove it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was that was good timing on that one as well, with obviously Murray and his mates launching a, a coup against Richard Leonard, which was ongoing at the time that news came out, mm. and which has since fallen flat on its ass. No, I mean, at least in 2016, the Labour right actually managed to get a leadership challenge launched. Though that doesn't seem yeah. to be happening in Scotland. No, um, no, there, well, there's, there's, there's no one with any talent on the right there whatsoever. They've got a reasonable support base in the membership, probably more in relative terms than Owen Smith did against Corbyn. But who can they put up that's going to get any votes for leader from anyone that doesn't already want the left out? Is it going to be like Ian Murray, Jackie Bailey? There's no one. <laughs> get Duncan Hothersall in. <laughs> The Hother's already dream ticket. <laughs> Not John. Oh God, John Reddy is it? Just get Kenny Young back in the fold. You know they need a doorman. Well, that was great because the other day I was thinking, what would have happened if some of the ridiculously clapped out old fuckers in the socialist campaign group had not left Parliament in 2015 and Corbyn just had a few more supporters. Ultimately, I figured not that much. It would have been slightly easier for him to get the required signatures to get on the ballot, but he did that anyway. And, you know, a lot of these people had, like, failing health and stuff, and at least two of them would have lost their seats to the Tories or the SNP anyway. But it turned out the guy, I can't remember which MP it was, but a Labour left-winger up in Scotland who stepped down in 2015 his seat did not nominate another left winger it nominated that guy calamity kenny kenny young gordon brown's doorman i believe he was and he lost miserably to the snp and in the party's infinite wisdom (laughs) it actually was wise this time they didn't select him again in 2017 danielle rowley was selected and she won the seat Although she did lose it again in 2019, but that's you know, yeah, late. but almost that's being, everyone would have lost it in 2019. That's being a Labour candidate in Scotland for you. She was yeah. far better than Kenny Young. Kenny um, Young has since been expelled from Labour or suspended <laughs> from Labour. I don't know if he actually got expelled. That's the number one result when I search for him. I don't think it says why if I remember because he's locked his account. 
but the number two result is a 2017 article by him himself, 2015 even. So this is before Corbyn took over, this is in the aftermath of the 2015 election. The subheading is literally, I am the only Labour candidate to ever lose Midlothian. <laughs> no longer true to his credit, but he was the <laughs> yeah, first, he was the pioneer. Oh, poor Danielle. <laughs> you know, Danielle at least won it first. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Against predictions at the time, it was a shock on the night. But even in 2015 there, his, his article that I'm talking about here was, No rash changes for Scottish Labour. And that's essentially still the position of the Scottish Labour, right? No, let's just keep on going. The electorate will see that we're right eventually. When's this going to happen? How's it going to happen? Because we're talking a 15-year decline here. But of course, how could we bring up Change UK in our discussion of this book without talking about the single most significant political figure in that party? Probably the biggest loss that the Labour Party suffered when these great MPs left. I'm not talking about PR company executive Luciana Berger here, I'm of course talking about Mr. Michael Gapes. So, there are seven fucking seven mentions of Gapes in this book. Not enough, not enough. They don't understand the draw they have in Gapes. I added Patrick Maguire. I said, Patrick you talked to Mike Gapes you interviewed, you sat face to face with the great Gapes in 2019, you interviewed with him, an extensive <coughs> interview, you know, paragraph after paragraph on his views on the Real Politic podcast. Fantastic, in depth interview. And now all of a sudden, ah, oh, Gapes is old news. Nobody wants to hear about Gapes. Gapecast only has heart for listeners. Real Politic does blah, 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 blah. Fuck off! Like, you can't just. This is Mike Gapes we're talking about, for Christ's sake. That this was his, the, the, the protagonist of the last few years reduced to a walk-on part. This is I mean, the man who's, uh, who's shown he's got an understanding of the appeal of Gapes, the unique divorced energy specifically. <laughs> <laughs> I have been divorced. I know what a divorce is like. So, like, Gapes barely appears. One time he appears, he's just being a fucking weirdo as usual in the right-wing birthday club WhatsApp group. Um, uh, he says, uh, I am not prepared to support the racist anti-Semite period. It's over for me. The last sentence certainly being the case. But I just love, like, the racist anti-Semite. Like, it's just the, the, ma- the mania that the that these people have been driven into that anti-Semite is not sufficiently uh, yeah. p- potent rhetoric. They have to add the racist anti-Semite. It's like, does Gapes think that there are non-racist anti-Semites? God's sake. Yeah, I know, I know. But the Gapes mentions few and far between as they are have already led to one classic canonical Gapes tweet. Oh yeah. Um, it was described in this, when he first makes his appearance in the book as like the avuncular Mike Gapes Um, your divorced uncle who just comes to fucking christmas dinner and it's just like where is the milk what is this why are you pouring brandy on the christmas pudding not molten milk (laughs) and it then describes him as a hatless smurf so (laughs) obviously we were, we were like taking the piss out of him a bit everyone else not actually everyone else but most of the sort of centrist MP types in the entire book get quite a lot of credit he's trying to sort of 
play him up as like heavyweight. Even Gavin Shuka, who's fucking nothing, is like, yeah. oh, he, he looked like he was tipped for the top. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's a mediocrity, but he's a mediocrity who got in Parliament when he was quite young. But anyway, I tweeted that it was the political journalism equivalent of that Attenborough tweet where it's like, Attenborough gives the crabs no respect, always gives them silly music. They're like jesters to him. <laughs> I just, for the first time in ages, through my tears, I did the old right-click open incognito window. Yeah. Getting Michael Walker on again there. No, that was a, a live Leon Russell performance of a song for you this time. Right, okay, yeah, this is a multimedia experience. This <laughs> <laughs> Navarro's branching out. Right. Um... <laughs> First he did the record with Elton John, my close personal friend, then joined the Navarro team. <laughs> Yeah, but anyway. No, Liam's so, uh, dead, sadly. <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> I did the old crying through tears, you know, crying through tears, right? That's the yeah, that's <laughs> The old right click, open incognito window, let's see what gates. Yeah. Like a jolted ex partner. And message to the cult. I like the Smurfs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just like, yeah. Gates just like has to Google the Smurfs and he's like, yeah. oh yes, I've always like, been a fan of these little chaps. They remind me of the Oompa Loompa folk who staff Gape Manor. Avuncular blue Belgian Europeans. <laughs> Can you imagine anyone that isn't like a really avid listener of our podcast just seeing that tweet and trying to understand anything <laughs> about the context of it? Who I are the like cult? The Smurfs. Who is Mike Gapes? <laughs> Why is he ranting about the Smurfs? Oh, what, what, what do you mean this was someone who was literally an elected MP like nine months ago? <laughs> <laughs> why, oh. why is he? Why is he ranting about children's TV? Look, I mean, we 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 already knew that Alistair Campbell was a fucking alleged murderer, but he's responding here to Gapes like, "Should have got my book on depression. Be better for your mental health." I'm like, <laughs> is he trying to fucking kill Gapes? Don't fucking give Gapes that shit. Like that will just fucking finish him off literally does he want us to stop making gape cast before we've used up all our fucking ideas and gape sense says hopefully someone will buy that for me as a present space then exclamation mark which is also what campbell did in his tweet then campbell says leave nothing to chance i say it's like fucking hell. But the, the extra tragic thing is that Gapes is and cultist please note I like the Smurfs tweet is in response to his own tweet where he posts a picture of his newly arrived copy of Left Out and says My birthday present to myself arrives a day early. It's just tragic, isn't it? What, what can you say? Really low below the belt insulting comment from despise the Tories who at Mike saying any chapters on how to lose weight two laughing emojis <laughs> real no, you that's know, not nice no that's not one of our people we do not endorse despise the Tories' words there Mr Corbyn will you well, come we, we, we endorse the specific words despise the Tories but the <laughs> yeah. actual tweets not so much anyway Gapes responds you could start by going to find your brain so best trot off now bye he loves that. The best thing you can do, which I can't do anymore, so you should all do it and, and so I can live vicariously through you, is just go on Twitter search from Mike Gapes, trot off. He has used this as his comeback 
hundreds of times. He was obviously so pleased with himself when he came up with it. He goes on rampages where just anyone that says anything he doesn't like, trot off, trot yeah. off to Russia, you troll. Like, <laughs> just again and again and again. That's why I really wish there was more Gapes banter in here because just the extremity of the stuff he says, why could they not have included like one quote from Gapes in the from Russia with hate chapter, which is literally what it's called. When everyone's banging on like, what the fuck? Why would Seamus Milne say that? Why would he say that the intelligence services shouldn't always be trusted? They should. I am definitely a left winger. I just think that the intelligence services are infallible. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> sorry to friends listening to this. Who uh, we do have. I don't know why they couldn't mention because it was completely unprecedented that when Milne said that to the press lobby, they all thought oh wow, that's so weird that somebody would question the integrity of the British deep state. That they <laughs> reported that the Labour spokesman was Mr. Seamus Milne. But then, of course, where it really kicked off was that Mike Gaves, then still a Labour MP, got up in Parliament and did his Mr. Seamus Milne speech, which was a pretty low attack on a Labour aide who could not speak out publicly in response. So just, you know, very disappointed by how they've written Gapes out of a historical record here. Yeah, shocking. I suspect he might be disappointed too, reading his birthday present to himself. Yeah, if there's one thing he deserves credit for, it's his strong opposition to literally anything to do with Russia ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Little Chris Leslie bit here. Some, like Chris Leslie, an unreconstructed brownite who had been unexpectedly elected aged just 24 in the landside of 1997, believed that Corbynomics, with its steep spending increases and nationalisations, <laughs> printing, printing money, nationalisations, we should get royalties off this fucking shit book. Would bankrupt the country, which they then state that Angela Smith also agreed with. You know, these people are just so right wing. But it's just great, like, to have a book that's not written by people on the hard left, that it's just like, yeah, Chris Leslie believes this stuff. No, it's no not... one likes him. He's off in his own little world. There's also a bit about Chris Leslie having a lilting West Yorkshire accent. Which is bizarre, because he sounds... I mean, you know, on Gapecast, when I did the episode where Gapes accidentally poisons Chris Leslie to death with a load of rotten milk that he uh, keeps in his cellar where he records the podcast, Chris Leslie makes a joke about how he's never been to his constituency and finds it really weird that Gapes actually lives in his. And I think that's fairly true of Chris Leslie. He comes across as someone who, whatever, like, Nottingham (laughs) credentials he claims to have, had zero connection with his constituents and seems like a totally like London-centric politician and when people ask us who the voice is on our intro they never suggest that it's somebody from Yorkshire it is always is that David Cameron is that Dan Snow (laughs) yeah he's like the most high-profile office ever held by someone that absolutely no fucker has heard of interesting bit of gossip I'm, I'm kind of resorting to looking at my thread on Twitter now but There is actually a name in here for who cancelled all the Corbyn staffers' passes to get into Labour HQ after the 2017 election. This is attributed to Jackie Storey. 
Seamus Milne, Kerry Murphy, Andrew Fisher, and Niall Suku were among the people whose passes were revoked after the 2017 election, when of course they weren't going anywhere. The fact that they have a name for this almost makes me wonder if Jackie's story is just totally unrepentant and was talking to Pogrand and Maguire, just like, yeah, I did that. You fucking trots. I don't give a fuck. I'm doing it again in an instant. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It was Story who had ushered Tony Blair into Downing Street on the morning after his landslide victory, and she intended to be the one to banish the Corbinites after their landslide defeat. Ian McNichol as well comes across as oh, such what a wanker! Useless, useless karate kicking light switches for fuck's e- sake. Even if you're on the right, Ian McNichol comes across as a useless, incompetent, pathetic figure. Here's a bit where some guy who's an ally of McNichols after the 2017 result is like, "This isn't gonna work out." <laughs> They're gonna come for me. You're not gonna have my back anymore. And this guy saying to Ian McNichol, "Oh, Ian, you're not gonna have my back anymore." Impassive, McNichol replied in his low Scottish burr, "I know, I know." He's just like, "Yeah, I won't have your back anymore. Fuck off now. I've got these trots to deal with. Leave me alone." What an asshole. <laughs> That's right wing solidarity for you. Going back to the Seamus Milner erasure, I just want to highlight that this book specifically references Seamus Milne's post 9 11 article and doesn't <laughs> say the line. What is it? They don't understand why they're hated. They don't know why they're hated, is it? Well, it means the same thing either way. Yeah, but it specifically references that. They can't see why they're hated, that's the one. It just goes on. They've got some boring quote from it just to try and highlight, oh, this guy's a maverick. He was slagging off America after 9-11. No, you, you both missed the point of the article and missed the really funny bit. At the top. <laughs> yeah. Right. They don't, did they mention it, that he commissioned Bin Laden? No, they don't, no. But uh, come on to conspiracies in a sec. But if you click <laughs> on that now, that Milne article, it now comes up with, like, this article is more than 19 years old. But they've definitely, <laughs> definitely, definitely updated the header at some point. That is not the house style from 19 years ago with the modern headshot from later in his time in The Guardian. So they've kept that on there specifically as a historic article, which, fair enough. But, <laughs> yeah... There's a section in this book that takes entirely seriously the crank-centrist conspiracy theory about Corbyn liking to go for a jog. The actual authors of the book don't offer any opinion on it explicitly, but their framing of it implies they actually think, yeah, that's ridiculous, what's he doing claiming that he goes for a jog? Oh, what? The stuff about Corbyn's failing health that was briefed to the papers, including, by the way, by the civil service. I feel like the book did include voices that express what an outrage this was, but they almost make out that the idea that the civil service breached impartiality by briefing the press with not just stuff about Corbyn's health, but actually some quite politically motivated stuff I think about how you know he does he's not interested in winning or all just the standard stuff you saw from political opponents of the Corbyn project but they almost make out that this is a deflection whereas in reality I think that was very serious thing that there was these briefings from inside the civil service yeah the report uncritically quotes uh, he said he goes for a jog sometimes this is just like North Korea, <laughs> who's, who's actually the allegedly claimed to have broken the record for the number of holes in one in a round of golf, like the first time they ever played golf in their life. That's exactly <laughs> the same as a fairly old man in good shape for his age going for a jog of, well, of, of a length more than a lot of younger people would. One of them's perhaps unusual in that probably a small percentage of pensioners would do it. 
but absolutely within the realms of possibility. And the other one is a cartoonish lie. Whether it's actually <laughs> anything that they did claim, I don't know, because obviously reporting on North Korea is unreliable in the West. But mm. the, the idea that these two things are directly comparable is absurd. There's only one person who thinks that, and it's that fucking Paul Richards guy, or whatever his name is. <laughs> well, if we want to talk about bits that are unreliable information in the book, there is one bit that we we can possibly reveal as a scoop is untrue. Senior Lotto sources have confirmed exclusively to the Real Politic podcast <laughs> that the thing about nobody in the leader's office having any idea who Corbyn's friend Raj was, who he would communicate with on WhatsApp, is untrue. Apparently they all knew perfect... Well, maybe not whoever briefed this to Pogrind and Maguire, but plenty of people in Lotto actually knew perfectly well who Raj was. And I say, Raj, you sound like a smashing bloke. Come on our podcast. Yes. Yes. (laughs) But that's a bit of a weird bit in the book anyway, even if it had been true, because there's this attitude of, oh, Corbyn would spend a few minutes of his morning listening to what a normal person from civilian life had to say. Why would he <laughs> yeah. do that, you know? Why, <laughs> why, is weirdos. He, why is he interested in what his friend has to say when his friend hasn't even got a political appointment or anything? <laughs> yeah. What particularly is wrong with that, unless he was spending literally all day doing it or something and just not doing any work? Like, <laughs> it's literally, oh, he's checking out for a few minutes of his drive into work. So what? He works long days. It says elsewhere in the book he was working from like 6am to half 11 a lot of the time. What exactly is the issue with him checking his phone on his way to work and seeing what his mates have to say? A lovely little nugget that again, inside sources confirmed to us is true, is that Corbyn had a full copy of the entire Chilcot report taking up a whole shelf in his office. Absolute king shit. (laughs) And you know, everyone's like, oh, Keir Starmer, he stayed up all night reading this, like, fucking tedious legal document, blah, 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 blah. It's just weird, because judging by the party's response, I'm not sure Keir Starmer read the uh, 800-page internal Labour Party report, for example, but people always say, oh, Keir reads all this shit. I bet Corbyn's read the entirety of the Chilcot report. I bet it was riveting reading for the man. I think that's all our insider knowledge. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, we, we, we've maybe sort of <laughs> at this point in the last two minutes or so got our listeners' hopes up, thinking we're going to have another hour of this specific type of content. But no, that that's it. That's it. <laughs> there are a lot of a lot of you know juicy nuggets in here. One thing I think is interesting. So remember when. Ian Austin, around the time all the anti-Semitism was kicking off and Margaret Hodge went and did her verbal attack on Corbyn and the Commons, mm. and Ian Austin then did a similar verbal attack on Ian Lavery, kind of got up in his face and yelled at him. And now Ian Austin is of course one of the most unpleasant people in politics, so it's quite vindicating for those of us who've had doubts about the character of Tom Watson to get it repeatedly stated in this book that he and Austin are indeed best friends. Who could be friends with a man like Ian Austin? Well, our former deputy leader apparently. Now Ian Austin chose that day to go up and square up to Ian Lavery, which, you know, you've almost got to commend the bravery, although, like I say, Ian Austin is a horrible thug, so it's probably not completely out of his character to just go up and verbally abuse someone. However, 
I am slightly surprised that Arch Labour HQ Melt Patrick Hennigan did the same thing to Ian Lavery. Confronted him in the bar of the Grand Hotel. Irate, Hennigan accused Lavery of briefing the press that he had sabotaged Labour's 2017 general election campaign. As MPs Gloria DePiro and John Ashworth attempted to restrain him. Again, like, whilst they seem to be, in this case, like, getting him not to try and... It sounds like he was about to hit Ian Lavery. Good on them Imagine for that. Imagine fucking but... Patrick Hennigan squaring up to you, though. You'd just laugh, wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, he, he, he Particularly if you're in Lavery. But it shows, I think, what side those two were on. That they were all like, leave it, Patrick, it's not worth it. And those two have really shown their true colours in recent months. But Hennigan shoved his finger in Lavery's face. We gave you the best advice based on what we were seeing, he spluttered. And what we were seeing was not wrong. That doesn't sound like how someone speaks when they're screaming in someone's face. I bet it was a lot more, you, you fucking, you, you, you fuck, you, 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 you people are all thugs, you know that, you, you, you're just a, you know, barely coded attacks on his working class background. Conscious that the scene was unfolding before the eyes of watching journalists, Slavery restrained himself and stared back glassily with a mixture of pity and contempt. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, just some ridiculous shit, man. Another bit about another one of our heroes in the PLP. One Lotto aide recalled that their first and only conversation with Neil Coyle MP was when he uttered the unforgettable greeting, Why don't you just fuck off? (laughs) Incidentally, something else that has come out in the course of this book is that Ian Austin, not Ian Austin, sorry, another completely interchangeable, abusive, potato-headed cunt, (laughs) Neil Coyle would repeatedly send Jeremy Corbyn late-night texts where he'd be like, you're destroying the party, how do you look at yourself in the mirror? That being like the milder ones. It's like some fucking eager elephant shit, isn't it? Just some demented rant. Always like three in the morning. I think Tom Williams, our friend, said that maybe we should start referring to Neil Coyle as Neil, this mortal Coyle, because he always seems in his, at least the way he behaves online or in his text messages to Jeremy Corbyn and reportedly other people, to just be fucking on one in the manner of somebody who is severely inebriated and is not a kind of happy, playful drunk by any yeah. means. Also, it's more coil because he should shuffle off it. Yeah, well, yeah. There's also about... On Minecraft. On my Yes! We were, all, we were talking about video games there. Yes, um, exactly, yeah. Another name that may ring a bell to people who followed i guess more than like oh what's going on at labor hq are kind of like westminster horse racing is like which labor mp is a right-wing cunt and <laughs> and over the last few years people may remember when conor mcginn said for oh, oh, i criticized jeremy corbyn and uh, my dad's a Sinn fein counselor and, and and jeremy corbyn knows him from back when they did the warrington bombing together uh, and, and corbyn threatened to call my dad on me and that was just <laughs> the corbyn friend to call my dad on me episode was one of the great moments incredible of the, uh, the, it? yeah the owen smith campaign and you know we've talked a lot about what an R Tom Watson is, but I mean, let's almost like offer some critical support to Labour's current deputy leader because it seems that, though I suspect she is one who kind of talks the left wing talk when it's opportune for her, Angela Rayner seemed very much in tune with her left wing PLP colleagues about a lot of their 
right-wing opponents in the PLP when she opined in response to Ian Means, whose name they've spelt wrong, called him Ian Means, um, <laughs> in a WhatsApp of left-wing MPs and Corbyn aides, he said, McGinn is one of the nastier ones I've come across in the Commons. And that's saying a lot. To which Angela Rayner opined, he's a real scumbag. I doubt his parents even like him. He's that nasty. To which I say, it is probably true that Conor McGinn's Sinn Féin dad thinks his son is a right-wing cunt. (laughs) She says, I too have never met anyone as vile as him, and I was born in a trade union movement. (laughs) (laughs) There's another great bit from Angela Rayner here. She was talking in the left-wing WhatsApp. Ian Lavery wrote about... (laughs) <laughs> right, so listen to this. When Times sketch writer Patrick Kidd ribbed Diane Abbott and Angela Rayner at length, I've never even heard of that sketch writer, but imagine how unfunny he is if we haven't even heard of him. John Crace's Howlers, at least they register, they're so bad. <laughs> not everyone can be John Crace, you can't hold everyone to that sort of standard. You know? No, but, I mean, uh, some people actually get better at writing when they stop doing heroin. You've got to put the hours some in. Some people are pay, better when they're your dues to get to the the top of the mountain specifically here we're we're alleging that gabriel pogrand and patrick Maguire do heroin or (laughs) stop doing it it in order to get this book finished when the time sketch writer patrick kidd ribbed diane abbott and angela rayner at length in one of his pieces lavery wrote on whatsapp scum that's what they are scum to lavery the sunday times was also a scum paper well, I mean, it would be inconsistent right. to say that the times were scum, but of oh, the Sunday times, they're fine. No, no, completely different papers. Just <laughs> like the mail and the mail on Sunday. To Angela Rayner, the sun was the scumbag sun, while other newspapers were vile vipers. <laughs> I don't fully disagree with her. I don't disagree with her in the slightest there. There is also another instance of the proverbial... Emily Oldno was the brains of the operation in yes. this book. Which, I think to be whoever fair, gave him the quotes about Oldno in this book is the same person that came up with the infamous quote. Yeah, but it's to be got fair, the same tone to it. You can also extrapolate from this quote that Ian McNichol was a useless dickhead who was no kind of leader for the right. Another said Ian had a role. But she had the brains. She did the thinking. She had been running the party for five years. She was general secretary in all but name. Well, hang on. <laughs> if she's been running the party for five years, should she not have stepped down after the abysmal result in 2015? No, it doesn't work like that. It's only when you're on well, the did, left. Did she win the argument? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Should Keir Starmer have not run for leader and won after he masterminded Labour's horrendous Brexit strategy? No. It's good that we're led by that person now. There's another bit about Tom Watson here. The thing about Tom, one NEC member said, is that he's a bully. If you stand up to bullies, they don't know what to do. Corbyn looked him in the eye in 2016 and effectively said, fuck off, I'm not going. (coughs) Then he did quite well. Tom didn't know how to cope with it, so he just yeah. retreated. And yeah, fairly true of Tom Watson. There is this bit, like, they, they've, they give... yeah, they've, they've got Tom Watson nailed on quite well in the book, I think. He's one of the people who is on record, quoted under his own name, and they give him a nice big send off where he, like, rants for about a page about, like, the inhumanity of the party. And it's just like, you fucking bullshitter. Your best yeah. friend is Ian Austin. 
this like insanely I mean, unpleasant person and you're just like yeah great guy like, what the <coughs> fuck well Watson was known for years and years and years including earlier in this fucking book as the hard man the enforcer of politics the chief fixer who do all the, the <laughs> back bully. channels and the dirty tricks to get what he wants and also a bully that folds when people stand up to him yeah you know, that that is the great the thing that they talk about what talk a about quitter he is yeah you know, he quit yeah. under Blair, although that was a strategic quitting. He mm. quit under Miliband when the heat got on him over Falkirk. And he quit under Corbyn when he wasn't going anywhere. You know what? I don't think Keir Starmer would have wanted Watson to stay on. He's just a divisive figure. I Angela Rayner Watson... is much more the kind of thing that Starmer needs for his project. Yeah, yeah. I think with Tom Watson as well, there's a couple of little bits in the book that just feed the reputation that I've heard about where I... I He's just a very lazy man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, everyone stopped getting freaked out when Tom Watson turned up to meetings because he only turns up when he thinks he can cause trouble, sort of thing. He's just you playing know? Angry Birds on his phone or Tiddlywinks like Gates in that APPG <laughs> that one time. I did a multiplayer game on the go. <laughs> it's Warcraft. Gapes, or Gapes was winning, of course. He's put the hours in. He's the fucking Tiddlywinks master. <laughs> does not miss no i mean the tom watson stuff is quite interesting yeah i mean he is just this quite cowardly figure yeah he bangs on about in his little like self-eulogy when he resigns in the book and he says oh the inhumanity like the brutality of how the left were i forgot to say here but specifically the left on the nec are running and it's like you know you think about like who the people on the left actually are and like that pete willsman who a lot of people on the left think he's a bullying prick he's been suspended from the party for ages he's just talking about like lara mcneil and like huda elby and stuff and it's just the idea that this guy who you know him and ian austin fucking going down the pub with Rod Liddle like every fucking week oh yeah. no 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 this guy can't like well, handle these are too like... intimidating for me yeah yeah. yeah 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 it's just a joke but they let Carrie Murphy and possibly Seamus Milne at least allies of him say their bit so of course they let Tom Watson say his bit too now interesting that I want to get on here Nato Nia now, they're so incurious about her political trajectory. Yes, yeah, just, it's literally not even a sentence. It is really disappointing for a book that quite rightly has at least half a chapter dedicated to, like, potential MI5 interference. Although it's mostly <coughs> just kind of like, oh, Andrew Murray and Seamus Milne suspected it. It doesn't really kind of get into too much meat there. Again, we need a better connected journalist like Seamus Milne to write a book that really gets into that kind of stuff. But, or just um, to come on the podcast, that will work as well. Yeah, yeah come on the podcast, Seamus. Yeah. Seriously, we've got to try pulling all the strings we can to get him on when he does do his book. We were at one point followed by Seamus Milne's son on one of our old Real Politic accounts. Yeah, if you listen. The invitation listening. is open as well. Any members of the Milne family can come on the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All Milne's welcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, AA. <laughs> anyway, a mysterious conversion. Alright, so, okay, here's the bit about NATO Nia. Not, I'll, I won't get into my tweet. Although Nia Griffith had been one of a few MPs with sufficient frontbench experience who were willing to serve in 2016, unlike Corbyn, she believed in retaining the UK's independent nuclear deterrent. An awakening she experienced only after her ascension. You know, isn't that very interesting? Yeah. Haven't all of us been given a job by a left winger and abruptly shifted our policy stances? Um, Immediately changed our political Far to views, the right. Specifically tied to the job we've just got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The prior agreement of our stances on which 
was why you got the yeah. job in the first place. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's it's so bizarre. And they just toss it off. And the next sentence, she saw it as her duty to undermine the leadership where necessary. It's like, they just gave her a job. You've just gone in one sentence from, they appointed this person. And she was just like, someone who had previously agreed with their politics on this particular issue, a longtime CND member. She'd just been like, Nah, fuck that, like, whatever, like, nah, I, I'm right-wing now, I love nukes, I love NATO. It's <laughs> really normal political drift, happens to us all. You could kind of say, well, it kind of does, because it happened to Clive Lewis as well, he got the defence secretary job and suddenly decided he thought that NATO was this great peace-ensuring organisation. But the, he's at least didn't... got a career history that might provide an explanation for it you know well yeah i mean someone said the other day you can't trust an ex-squaddy and i'm like lads what about hashtag clive for leader but um like <laughs> no i mean but, but clive but, yeah, lewis that... for leader can't trust clive lewis going by his own interviews at the time <laughs> and yeah it's true that i mean clive's support was not coming from unite who have a more nuanced position on nuclear weapons for people who were bigging clive up as a future leader or like the gmb who do not have a nuanced position on nuclear weapons so you can see maybe why he was getting forced into that position and perhaps that's the same with Nia Griffith but just you know Clive Lewis never went full hawk like she did she was all just like yeah we need to like pardon right this is the point at which my mic cut out so uh <laughs> tune in next time for the conclusion of our conversation just a little teaser I was saying that Nia Griffith said that we should pardon British soldiers who commit war crimes okay goodbye everyone See, you got the new biography Where did they get the info from? Same as before, some so-called friend Who claimed to have known me then How come they've got such good memory Well, I can't even remember last week Got the question where they're coming from what knowledge of it is me that they speak so far away Way back when The people that claim To have known me then Then now I'm a wavelength and it's such a shame That they have to play the name game the name game Lord, it's a crying shame Lord, tell me what's to blame Reinventing all the stories they know Give them all a different slant What is it that they're really looking for? Just a hobby on the internet so far away Way back when The people that claim 
a shame That they have to play the name game The fame game Oh, the name game Yeah, such a crying shame They tell me who's to blame All right, check the phone